Let's open up our Bibles. Um, Micah. We're in the book of Micah this morning. A book that is uh, obviously shorter than Isaiah, but nestled in the midst of this minor prophet is a, a picture of our one true and only hope, Jesus Christ. It's right in the middle, Micah chapter 5. I want you to turn there. I'm going to read verses 2 through 5 just to open this up. This is all about Jesus in the Old Testament. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient, day, ancient days. Excuse me. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is another Advent prophecy. This meshes with Luke chapter 2, and it is very precisely placing the birth of Jesus Christ in a precise little town that's universally famous, not because it's a special town, but because Jesus came from there. This is messianic. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. Let me just reiterate up front that Jesus is the point of the whole Bible. Every book of the Bible is 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 a living picture of our Messiah, of our one true hope. It is. This, this word, this minor prophet, not a minor leagues prophet, just a shorter prophet, is speaking about Jesus in the midst of desperate times and desperate circumstances. We're going to look at how desperate it was in Judah. It was the same circumstances, same timing that Isaiah was preaching, Micah was preaching. So the same circumstances from last week carry over to this week, and they were in the same sins of idolatry, of, of abuse, of extortion, of leaders who are lacking integrity. We're going to look at all that, and they needed some hope. Judah was basically asleep in their sins, and they needed to be shaken awake. You ever been there? You know, as, as a parent of six, I'm uh, always sort of walking the line of, uh, you know, between insanity and adventure. And basically, as I... Um, have found my kids to be growing up into the preteen age, they have one true desire in life, and that is to have animals in our house. And some of you by Facebook probably know our animal culture. We've had a couple of hamsters come in. Well, recently I was, you know, kind of working with my 10-year-old boy and trying to think through the idea of a reptile coming in, and I kind of opened that reptile door. Pray for me. And uh, basically, I wanted a lizard, and what came home was a corn snake, a four-foot-long corn snake. And some of you are snake people, and most of us um, who are Christians are not. And basically, <laughs> this, thing, this thing comes into our house, and it just gives me the willies, you know, thinking about it. You try to name it, make friends with it, and it's a corn snake. And most those of you who know corn snakes, they don't really do damage. I mean, not, nothing's going to happen to you unless you're a mouse. Now, 
We've had a couple mice brought into the house, too, which is another error in my parenting. But um, the, the mice have come in to feed the snake. But what was so illustrative to me, and this is a good illustration to use now because the snake will soon be gone. But, this, but, what's, but it's a good, we've talked. It's okay. Anyway, um, the, the mice were put in the aquarium last night, and I'm watching them. You know, the gray mouse and the white mouse, and they're getting along, and they're kind of nestling down in the, you know, almost in the coils of the snake. They don't realize they are snake food, and they are trapped in mortal danger. They're kissing and dancing on the snake and, you know, making friends with it, and then nestling down to sleep with the snake all coiled up, just waiting to get hungry enough to swallow them whole. Well... It's kind of funny, but it's, it's also a very, very clear metaphor of how casual and how cavalier we can be regarding sin, especially sin that's influencing us around us in the culture. The culture sin always creeps into the church, and we have to be careful that it doesn't creep into our hearts as we are influenced by sin. And it's, the influence comes when we let our guard down and we begin to say, you know, sin really isn't that bad It's not really that dangerous. It's not really that hurtful. We've got a whole society that's nestled down like mice. You know, they fight each other sometimes and then fall asleep. And they're not even addressing the real problem, which is the snake in the aquarium. Well, Micah talks about a pretty severe snake that's in Judah, a sinfulness that's in Judah that was going to mean their destruction. Ultimately, invaders would be allowed in by God to bring retribution and judgment because that southern kingdom was turning away from God. And Judah is more a picture of the church than a picture of the United States of America. Judah was a Christian, the one true genuinely set up by God Christian nation and it was going apostate on God it was forgetting about the Lord and so people like Isaiah and Micah were standing up and going wake up because invaders are coming Babylonians will come down and take you captive you need to repent but in the midst of that call to repentance and that warning and that indictment for judgment there was hope And we've just read of the hope, that the hope is in God and specifically in Jesus. But turn over to Micah 7. I can't help but get there. I got to give the ending before we get into the, the middle. Verse 18. This phrase, this question that Micah asks is the question of the ages. It's the question on which all of the world turns, on all of Judah back then turns on this question. Your spiritual life turns on this question. Look at this. Who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? And it goes on from there. But just think about it. How can you have a God who's holy, who, who created hell to punish sin and sinners, who, who will bring justice, how can you have a God who also forgives and pardons at the same time? Who knows a God like this? I think a lot of people 
they get you know wound up with the problem of evil. You get frustrated and say, why did God allow evil in the first place? Well, once you realize how evil our society and culture is and how much of a participant we are in that evil, the question kind of turns in your heart, doesn't it? Where you begin to say, how could God who's holy save me out of such a muck and mire of sinfulness that I'm involved in? How could he do this? What kind of God are you that saves me when I don't deserve it? These are questions of hope. So we're not just going to talk gloom and doom. We're going to get to the question and the answer of hope, which, fi- which is found in a God like this. We've got the one God who pardons iniquity, right? Do you understand that? That's why you, you have a guy up here who's passionate about the gospel. I want to re-engage you and re-inflame you about the fact that you've got the one true God who can forgive you and pardon you of all of your sins. And ultimately, it's found most clear in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, how bad, how bad was the situation? Let's just look for a few moments. Uh, Micah chapter 7. This is Micah. He's speaking um, as if he's Judah here. He says, Woe is me, or cursed is me, verse 1, for I have become as when the summer fruit is been, has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. In other words, it's barren. No fig, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. There's no fruit here. Why? Verse 2, the godly has perished from the earth. And there's no one upright among mankind. There's, there's no leadership here. There's no, there's no integrity um, in the land anymore. Look at verse 3. Their hands are what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judges ask for a bribe, and the great man utters evil, the evil desire of his soul. Thus, they weave it together. There's no godly people. They're lying in wait for each other's blood. It's dog eat dog in the world, in the society. People taking advantage of people. There's no caring people in the world. He compares them to a briar and a thorn hedge in verse it's pretty bad. He's, he's talking about a woe judgment. Does that sound familiar to our country, by the way? Is there any similarities that you can draw here? Is this such ancient literature in the Old Testament that doesn't apply to us? Or, or do, do we see some parallels here? I think we should. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 is where Paul, the apostle, was saying, look, things in society, you think they might get better? No, guess what? They're going from bad to worse. Romans 1, it's another place that shows you that society will spiral down worse and worse, and it's the last days that Timothy is taught taught by Paul about. Look at these descriptions. They're sad because they're all heart-level sins that are described here, not just the actions, but the attitudes behind the actions. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. This is 2 Timothy 3, 2. Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. This is all heart-level sins. This is what's churning inside the heart. Heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Does this sound out of touch with our society? Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. You say, well, that's just the last days. You know, that's right before Jesus will come back. Look around. Look around. This is 
descriptive of our society. And it recycles from culture to culture and generation to generation. But it's bad and it's, it's important for us to have the wool pulled back so that we can see clearly and say, man, we need a savior. We need Jesus Christ. Well, go, go over to Micah chapter 8. What are we called to? Look at what, look at what this society was called to. Micah chapter 6, I should say, verse 8. Yeah, there is no Micah 8. Here we go. All right, Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. You say, all right. I like that verse. You might like it like I do because you've probably sung that verse as a praise chorus, right? Some of you are singing that verse in your head right now. It's a, a favorite one of mine because you sing scripture and your heart just goes to, you know, the Lord as you kind of harmonize on truth. But you know what? If you set this request, this requirement in its context, it gets very difficult to bear. How many of you would say, look, okay, God, you require that I be merciful or humble, or have loving kindness, and I'm fulfilling that. Who wants to sign up, you know, for the humility badge award, right? Not me. To think about how sinful we are and how the sin of the world crowds out our holiness, and to view that in terms of this requirement can be depressing. We might want to sing the song and warmly resonate with it, but really some of us are like those two mice in the aquarium, asleep with the snake getting ready to gobble us up. We don't realize how dangerous our sin really is to ourselves. We might fool ourselves into thinking we're humble like this, but God is speaking to people and penetrating their hearts, saying, look, the requirement's here, and you have to live it out. Well, how do the people want to try to live it out? Look at verse 6 of chapter 6, kind of the running start. Uh, Micah is speaking for Judah again. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? That's really kind of, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs there, right? Give your firstborn. But th- this, these people were desperate. These people were saying, look... Maybe I can turn on the jets for my religion and give a thousand calves to make this right. Uh, I know you're requiring my humility. How can I get there with my religion? How can I make this work out, you know? How many times can I come to church or how many things, how many quiet times can I have? What can I offer to the Lord to, to get my heart right? Well, that's not what the Lord calls good. God calls good a humble, soft heart that understands sin and repents of it, and then looks to the Messiah for hope. We can't humble ourselves. We ultimately have to open ourselves up, and the Lord gives us his fruit of the Spirit. And his spiritual work in our lives is what we must lean on for genuine humility. We can't humble ourselves out of these kind of sin snares. Look at Micah chapter 3. Verses 5 and 7, he, he's talking about false teachers, people who preach a false gospel, who say, hey, 
We're crying out for peace here. Everything's fine. Just gloss over the sin in the world. It's all good. You know, this is your best life now. This is everything's fine. Don't worry about life. And Micah is saying, look, there is darkness for people like that. Look at verse 6. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets. The seers and diviners, they're going to be disgraced. He says of himself, look, I'm filled with the power of the Spirit, but not these men. Oh, but these prophets, they were divining, verse 11, they were giving their prophecies for money, and people were paying it and following these false teachers. And they were even saying, verse 11, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Isn't God in our midst? And then Micah says, no, disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. And Zion is Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of a wooden height. So these were dire and desperate circumstances. They were, in in Micah 5, they were following after carved Images They were following after fortune tellers. You say, well, we're not involved in that kind of occult religion. Well, listen, the idols are not the issue first. The idol is the heart where you make your pleasures. You make your goals. You, you, you make those thing, your, things your idols. What, you know, what, what crowds your thinking? What dominates what you think about in your free time? When you get a moment to leave work and go somewhere mentally, what is satisfying you? Well, what should satisfy us first as believers is Christ. Because he is the only one that will satisfy us. But when our hearts go to other things, those are things that we are tempted to worship for comfort, for solutions, for pleasure, for hope. And Micah is trying to shake this nation out of it. How does he do it? Well, the clearest way he does it is Micah chapter 5, where he's talking about the hope of Jesus. Let's turn there just to kind of look through the text. Verse 2 he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, he's, Micah is being used, and God is the mouthpiece here. God is speaking directly to Judah. And he's targeting the little town of Bethlehem. Now, let me just tell you something. Bethlehem was obscure when he was talking about them. Very obscure. And the call for how you can live out Micah 6.8 to be humble is to rest in a Messiah that was born in obscurity. Born in total obscurity. You say, how obscure? Well, it was a town of about 300 people. About 300 people is the population. It's the kind of town that you're driving by and you see the sign. Hey, is there a town here? Wait, that was 300 people. What happened? That's where Jesus comes from. Little town. Now, the only claim to fame that town had was King David was born there hundreds of years before. But now Bethlehem has universal fame and exposure. And so people know about this obscure town that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, was born in. But back then, this is just a little no-name place. And the word Ephrathah, that actually means fruitful because uh, 
Micah is designating this town. It's that Bethlehem, not this Bethlehem. In Joshua, there's mention of another Bethlehem. It's that little tiny place. That's where hope is going to come from. The second member of the Trinity, the one who's the wealthiest, the creator, he was rich and he became poor on our behalf so that we might become rich in faith. He became very poor. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, storybook language to think of Jesus in a manger. It's a feeding trough. trough. It's not sanitary, right? It's, it's like he was born in a garage. Okay, that's where the vehicles are. Born in the grease, right? I mean, let's find, you know, let's make this work here. That's where our Savior was born. And he was born there to make a point. Only through the eyes of faith do you see that that's God who showed up in this obscure little town. Look at verse 2. Who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. To be a clan of Judah, you had to have the population of a thousand people. So it was under a thousand people in Bethlehem. They were too small to be counted as a, a real place. But this is where we're resting. This is the Advent season where we reflect upon Bethlehem and we say, you know what? Thank you, God, that you were born in obscurity for our sake. And Micah here, what he's doing is he's, he's going back to Bethlehem to, to talk about a place where, where they would have remembered that David was born there. King David was born there. 300 years before he's writing this, David was born here. And all the kings since David sort of had, um, you know, had a checkered past. I mean, David himself was not um, the paragon of spiritual virtue, right? I mean, he had kind of sinned in egregious ways, but he was a man after God's own heart. But then you start talking Solomon and all the kings up through Hezekiah, which are, um, you know, in this southern kingdom. They had, they just aren't mentioned here. That's not the point of this passage. The point is, King David came from that place, and Jesus is coming from that place as well. That's the point. That's what Micah is doing. And I thought I would just think back about when, when David was affirmed to be king. 1 Samuel 16. Uh, remember the story of, of Samuel? He's, he's sort of Saul, the first king of Israel's guy. He's the right-hand man. Saul is um, cavalier. He's not a godly king. He was put in place because he was tall and because he was strong and people wanted a king and they thought this guy would come in and, and be the strong leader that they would, they would want. And he took matters into his own hands and offered the sacrifice too early, not waiting for, for Samuel to come. And Samuel saying, what are you doing? You're not following the Lord. And the Lord through Samuel said to Saul the, that God is ripping away the kingdom from you. Literally, it was pictured in 1 Samuel 15 where Saul's groping for forgiveness. Please forgive me. Please let me be the leader. And he rips Samuel's robe and Samuel looks at him and says, God is ripping the kingdom away from you. But Samuel takes his heart and in 1 Samuel 16, 1, God finds him crying like a child over the fact that Saul is gone. Who will help us? Where's our hope going to come from? And, and God said to him, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from, become, from being king over Israel? Fill your horn up with oil and go. I will send you, send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, a very specific place and a very obscure little town, little hillside. 
For I have provided myself a king among sons. If you skip down to verse 7, you've got the scene where Samuel is watching the different sons of Jesse parade in front of him. And Samuel's going, oh, I like this one. You know, he looks kingly. You know, he's tall and he's strong and he'll be our leader. But wait, that wasn't what the Lord wanted him to focus on. Verse 7, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. It's a key point here. Little David, who's, who's out in the fields, he's watching sheep. His credential is he's chief, you know, little sheep watcher, right? Nobody thinks he could be king. But Samuel says, are all your sons here? Verse 11, there remains, and then Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him here for, watch this, Samuel's cluing into what's going on. He knows God is going to raise up something out of obscurity and make it his own. He says, send and get him for he, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Go get him out in the fields. We're standing here because we know that this has to be the king. It's a very key moment. And he sent and brought him in, and he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. You know, the parallels aren't just prophetic here in terms of Bethlehem is where King David was. Bethlehem is where Jesus comes from. I mean, that's definitely in place, and God is a precise God, and it should embolden our faith to think, you know, the prophecy held up. It's perfect. Luke chapter 2, we can read about it. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It all came through the, you know, the tax season, and he had to go back there, and it, it all lined up perfectly, and that's the lineage of, um, of, of kings are coming through Bethlehem. It's all matching, and it emboldens our faith. But let me just tell you this. God raised up David out of obscurity And Jesus Christ, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, came in the same way. And guess what that means for you? God is not looking for your religious perfection. He's not looking for you to bring a thousand calves to make things right. He's not looking for you to offer your firstborn son to make things right with him. God wants you to be humble in heart. He wants you to rely on a Savior that would come from Bethlehem. And it takes a soft heart by faith to do that. He wants you to come under his mighty hand. He wants you to see your sin and to say, who is a God like you who would pardon transgressions like mine? I am overwhelmed by your grace. And specifically, I am in love with the Savior that came from Bethlehem. That's what I need. That's what softens the heart. That's the only way we get there from here in terms of fulfilling a requirement to be merciful in this life to be humble, to be soft. It's to, it's to go after this kind of Savior, the one who was rich, who became poor. Now, came from this trifling little town, but you know what? The text doesn't stop there. You get all of Jesus in this text. Look at this. It says, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, watch this, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. That phrase, is from old, is the Hebrew word olam. 
that word olam is only used in the Old Testament for God himself or God's attributes, who is from old. This is not just talking in terms of Micah saying, look, you know, this Savior that will come from Bethlehem, he's connecting back to David. No, that's not the idea here. Is from old is talking in terms of God being from all eternity. Uh, the same phrase is used in Psalm 25, 6. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. That's that word, olam. You, you've always been merciful. You've always been loving. Always in your character. It's from old. It's from ever. Forever. Backwards. It's from everlasting. Isaiah 63, 9, uh, 63, 16. Talking about God, for you are our father. Through Abraham, uh, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, you, O Lord, are our father. Watch this. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Your name is your character. Your character is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth on the world, and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Why is this important? You, listen to me. If, if you just believe Jesus comes from Bethlehem and the stable, and I believe in the story, but you don't fully grasp that Jesus is 100% man and 100% eternal God, then you don't have Jesus. Jesus, he walked in front of a lot of people in this world, and there were a lot of people that took him as a great teacher, as sort of a superficial, um, you know, Gandhi-like Messiah. But they didn't understand that he was God, and that's the key. That's the tipping point. That's where you begin to say, okay, we're talking about eternal God. In John chapter 8, verse 58, he's confronted by the Pharisees, and Jesus says, listen, I am before Abraham. He says, before Abraham was, I am. That phrase, I am, is the phrase that God used of himself when he was proclaiming himself through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses, where, he, where Moses said, when I go to Pharaoh to confront Pharaoh, who do I say sent me? God said, tell him I am sent you. And guess what? I think that was Jesus Christ speaking for himself in Exodus 3, just as he was speaking for himself in John 8, 58. It was enough that it was, a, it was you know, an execution type moment where the Pharisees were picking up stones to hurl at Jesus' head to kill him because they realized that Jesus was saying he is eternal. They're saying, we can't get there from here. You're standing here. You're a carpenter's son. Who do you think you are? Maybe they were thinking he was born in Bethlehem, that little hillbilly hick town where they probably, you know, pick out catfish out of the water, right? I mean, that's the kind of setting. What are you thinking? You're saying you're God. What in the world? We're going to kill you for that. But that's what the prophecy says. Jesus Christ came from Bethlehem, and he's from all eternity at the same time. How, how big a deal is this to you? Do you understand that if you don't have eternal God as your Savior, then you do not have a Savior? If you're trying, and this, this is taken from Mark Dever, who wrote that book on the Old Testament I was talking about, he said, look, if you try to pay for your sins, 
then you'll do that for all of eternity in hell. Think about that for a second. If you try to get to heaven on your own efforts, paying for your own sin with your own religion, then that's a condemnation where you will be in hell forever, paying for the offense that you've done against an eternal and holy God. We need eternal holy God as our sacrifice for our sins because we've, because we've offended an eternal and holy God. Right? Your sacrifice does not pass muster if Jesus isn't all the way man so he could die and all the way God so that he could account for your offense against an eternally holy God. It's beginning to make sense. The, the offense is so severe because God is so big that if we don't have the right Savior, then our sins aren't paid for. We needed the second member of the Trinity to leave his wealth and become poor for our sake. Now, what does that mean that he became poor? Let me just tell you this. Speaking of Jesus' humanity, Jesus... Being fully human, guess what? He can sympathize with all your weaknesses. Being born in that kind of poverty and raised as a carpenter's son who was a hard-working man, tempted in all ways as we were yet without sin, Jesus was pushed to the extremes of temptation. And because he couldn't sin, he had to out-survive and outlast those superficial external temptations and he had to push through those temptations trusting his father perfectly jesus couldn't sin but he can sympathize with us because he was fully and is fully human he's a sympathetic shepherd and high priest for you so you say nobody knows what's going on in my life nobody understands me guess what jesus does and he cares and he can sympathize and does And so you have the sympathetic shepherd who's also the perfect payment for your sins because he's also eternal, I am, Yahweh, God. That's Jesus Christ. And this this kind of theology, the hypostatic union, where you understand that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that's not just for head knowledge. That's not just to inspire us in terms of what we can grasp. That's essential to our eternal state to understand that. And that's why I'm so thrilled that children, you know, they just take it at face value. Yeah, Jesus is fully man and fully God. I get it. I got it, you know. But we we start to overthink it instead of saying, look, I'm going to reasonably look at Scripture and understand all of what it says and believe it all. I mean, Philippians 2, where it talks about Jesus making himself of no reputation. That's where he was rich and became poor. That's where he laid aside um, the independent use of all of his attributes. He was, he was submissive to his heavenly father, walking around here on earth, eating food, eating fish, getting tired, sleeping in a boat, waking up, calming the wind and the waves, saying, hush, be still. And he's all human and God at the same time. That's all of who he is. And you have all of him or you don't have him at all. How big is his reign going to be? Look, look at verses 3 through 5. This is awesome. I mean, this is, this is the insights of the Old Testament that are, that are further displayed in the millennial kingdom. This is forward-looking. Therefore, he shall give them up 
until the time. This is talking about Judah. And when she, Judah, who is in labor, has given birth, this is when at Bethlehem, Jesus shows up, then the rest of his brothers shall return and the people of it, to the people of Israel. In other words, more Jews will believe when Jesus comes on the scene. That's looking to the times of Christ, but that's also looking, looking to the ingathering of the Jewish people that will believe by faith in the future. Romans 9 through 11. There's a remnant that will believe, and I believe ethnic Israel, those who believe, will be in the millennial kingdom, and perhaps even in a prominent position. But the millennial kingdom, where all the nations are found in verses 4 and 5, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure... For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see that phrase, to the ends of the earth? That's Jesus. Jesus is great. He's Lord to the ends of the earth. All right, so first of all, how do we live um, out Micah 6, 8? How do we get a humble heart? We, we are waiting for the Lord. We're waiting for the Messiah. But secondly, uh, secondly here... We, we wait. Here, let me get my points right here. First of all, we rest in the Messiah. We rest in him, one who was born in obscurity. And then secondly, we wait for the Messiah. And I, I want to just build that out of a, a verse in Micah 7 real fast. It's a great verse. Look at this. This is after Mike in the midst of all of the gloom and doom of Micah in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me. This is the picture of Micah. Micah is the watchman on the wall. He, he's, he's posted like on tower guard and he's standing there and he's going, I know that I'm talking about how bad things are for Judah, how sinful it is, but I'm waiting for the Lord's return like a watchman. Is that your heart? Are you waiting for his return? That's Micah's heart. How do we get humble? How do we love mercy and justice? How do we break through the temptations that you're going to face this afternoon? How are you going to do that when, when things creep in and all of a sudden you turn into the person that you don't want to be? How, how are you going to do that? Well, number one, you're going to rest in a Messiah who was born in obscurity. And number two, you're going to wait for Jesus. You're going to have that anticipating hope. Jesus is going to come back and rescue me from all of the sins that haunt me every day. John Piper, he put it this way in a book called God is the Gospel. It's kind of a shake-up title. The idea is that the gospel, the good news, is you get God. That's the point of the book. You don't have to read it. You get God. Now, I would commend that book to you. It's a great book. Salvation is Jesus, and you want him. You don't just want the benefits of salvation. You want the person of salvation, and that's what Micah was saying. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And look at this promise too. My God will hear me. In the midst of all the static and noise of sin that was going on in Judah, Micah is saying, my God will hear me. That's salvation. Salvation isn't just an event. It's a relationship, right? Your God here. Do you believe God hears you? See, you hear your prayers? If you take home points, number one. Meeting God's requirements, speaking of Micah 6.8, being just, loving kindness, having loving kindness, walking humbly, it's impossible to achieve in your own strength. Do you believe that? You can't drum this up in religious effort. 
Only Christians are able to rest in the Messiah who met the requirement on their behalf. So we're, we're resting in and we're waiting for our Messiah. He did it so we don't have to do it. Number two, Jesus' obscure and unexpected origin further displays how God uses obscure and unexpected people to carry out his work. Can I just reemphasize that to you real fast as we close? You might have counted yourself out and you might say, God, you can't use me. I, I am the sins of Judah. I am, you know, that person sleeping in the aquarium with the snake. You know, I, I'm ready to be swallowed up by this sin habit, this addiction, this thing that nobody knows about. I can't be used. I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting the sidelines. I'm showing up to church today, but I'm not going to come back for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you might be in that category, but you know what? God uses people out of obscure, no-name circumstances, down-and-outer situations. He uses people that are you know, unlike Christ, but are coming out of a deficit. And, and he multiplies his glory through people like that. Through rescue, through redemption. There's a picture in Ezekiel of, a, of Israel being like a baby that was discarded and thrown into the mud. And the picture is God picking that baby up and washing it off. And saying, I'm, I'm going to restore you. And, and the picture and prophecy flows out and talks about this, this gal that grows up to be a beautiful young woman. I mean, perhaps you are in the mud of your sin and you just need to again rest afresh in the Messiah. And, and look to him as the one who hears you. Number three, only the one true Messiah could be both born of a virgin in Bethlehem and from all eternity at the same time. Only Jesus is fully man and fully God. You know what? We've got the right God. Amen? Number four, do you believe that this Savior hears your heart this morning? You better believe that. It's our only hope. Communion with God. He does hear you. If you have a relationship with him, if, if you don't believe he hears you, and perhaps it's because you haven't believed yet, I would encourage you, trust in Christ today. Trust in Christ from a gospel message from Micah chapter 5. Do you believe in the one true God from Bethlehem? And we should pray that we all do. Because that's the only way you can have a personal relationship with God. A God who hears you and knows you. A Savior who cleans you up and gives you the fresh start. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, Lord, I thank you for some of the trials that we've had because of the sound system, because it further highlights the fact that um, what we're really all about is um, communing with you and trusting you and knowing you as the temple of the Holy Spirit. I pray that we all would um, be on mission this week, and Lord, that we would take this morning as a jumping point towards uh, growth and, and towards uh, telling people about Jesus, the one we love most of all. Pray that we would um, see your work in our homes and in our workplace and in our neighborhoods for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up. I just want to encourage you in a couple ways, just as we leave. Number one, if you need a pledge card, it's over there, all that we talked about earlier. There's a lot of food in the back. I don't want you